Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. Every day we have like a 15-minute meeting with the kitchen staff and we talk about... We talk about cleanliness and standards and knife cuts and operational things, but we also like dive into these more philosophical and at times like semi-psychedelic ideas of like what it means to cook and your spirit and your emotion and your mom and like when you cried the first time you ate something special and why and how it's so deep and emotional and when you think about cooking like when you're basting a steak, like think about someone you love and think about doing it right and like why? And you'll like, I've definitely like cried on the line cooking, you know, just thinking about people. That is Chef Miles Thompson of Michael's Restaurant in Santa Monica, California, our guest this week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host, Andrew Friedman. And for those of you who feel like my intros are too long, this is going to be an enjoyable little run of shows for you guys because I have a backlog of interviews and I need to get them posted. I've fallen way behind. I've had a lot of opportunities to interview some great guests. So I'm going to do very short intros, very short mid-show breaks, Very short outros, which is the conclusion wrap-up portion of the show, for those who don't know that term, and just get you right to these things. So this week, or I should say this episode, we have Chef Miles Thompson, who is largely responsible for the incredible renaissance that Michael's Restaurant in Santa Monica, California has experienced in the last two years. For those of you who don't know, Michael's, which is owned by Michael McCarty, who also owns Michael's Restaurant on 55th Street in New York City, which is a very well-known sort of media power broker, power lunch and breakfast spot in New York City. But Michael Santa Monica is a hugely important restaurant. It was opened in 1979. It launched a number of chefs, most famously probably Jonathan Waxman. It was a revolutionary restaurant in terms of its American style of service. Michael's, I think, one of the most undervalued people in the U.S., but it is a restaurant that's coming up on its 40th anniversary and was showing its age, to be quite honest. I had I had lunch there not that long ago, maybe four or five years ago. The restaurant, I think, had six people in it. I don't think it was doing all that well. And Michael, who over the years has demonstrated real, as Jeremiah Tower said in his book, California Dish, real grit, stuck it out. He and Miles Thompson connected. And Miles is a young chef whose food I first had at Alumet Restaurant in the Los Angeles area. He left LA for a while, 
And then he came back at Michael's and the place is on fire again. I highly recommend it. And Miles is someone who I had known from my visits to the restaurant in the last few years. I've gone in there a few times because my book, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, which came out this year, spends a lot of time talking about that restaurant. The original chefs of the restaurant are actually on the cover of the book. That's how much that restaurant means to me. It's a photograph that I happen to love. And when I met Miles at the restaurant, he always seemed very shy to me. I think we've probably exchanged a grand total of maybe 10 sentences between my visits to Alumet and Michael's. We actually talk about this in the interview, but he is a completely different person outside the restaurant. He came strutting into our appointment, and I mean that in the, in the best way, just a confident young guy, and revealed himself to me, I'm sure his friends and colleagues in LA already know this, as a very deep thinker, as a very serious chef, very serious about his craft and what he's doing, a real appreciation for the history of the place where he's now plying his trade. And I was just knocked out by him. It was a really spectacular hour. So I am not going to say anything else about it. I'm going to get you right to it. This is my interview with Chef Miles Thompson, recorded just about a week ago in New York City. Here you go. So you're in New York to do a beer dinner. Yes. Yeah. This was your second one. Second beer dinner. Okay. You did one when you were at Alumet. Yes. Which we'll, get, we'll talk about in a few minutes. Sure. For people out there who have never done a James Beard House dinner... What's the ramp up like? What's the experience like? Well, the first thing anyone ever says about the James Beard house is that the kitchen is really small, mm -hmm. which after working at Alumet, which I mean, the size of this office we're in right now is about the size of the kitchen. Okay. So real talk, like it was pretty small, including the dish machine. Um, I thought, and I still think that the kitchen is not small. Yeah. Um, there's adequate storage for doing dinner for up to 80 people. And if you're organized, it's not a problem. The way that I've operated them in the past is that we prep everything before we travel. So there's no like buying cream here or like need to source eggs or right. we'll spin ice cream here in, in New York, but do everything else in Los Angeles. So there's a lot of late nights leading up to it, a lot of yeah. early mornings, yeah. a lot of neurotic packing and repacking and weighing things and using cryovac machines at other restaurants and hoping nothing breaks on the plane and dealing with the fallout if it does. When you're there, it's super professional. Like, it's a restaurant, essentially. Yeah. You're given a sous chef that works the house, and you're given interns, and you have... There's a, a front of house staff. Pro service staff yeah. that are like... I mean, they do like, I think, three or four dinners every week, maybe yeah, 52 at, weeks a year. At least. And yeah. they're just, they're all pros, and they're all like pretty militant, mm -hmm. which is appreciated, and very like cut and dry. I need this information, and they're all used to probably much crazier people than me, so it's fine. And I you felt it. good about the dinner. I did. The last dinner on this dinner, we both were like on pace with like record timing, they said, like, yeah. because we moved so quickly. You know, we, we had like a tactical team basically of seven people yeah. doing the, the plate ups and, and everything was already prepped. So. All right. A couple of things about your, your, your way back story. I did not, I, th I so associate you with California. I did not know until I was going over your bio that you are from Westchester County. I am, yeah. I grew up in Westchester. What town? South Salem. Okay. I live in Hastings-on-Hudson. Okay, cool. This is something, uh, I don't know if it ever comes up in your life, but you know, this is something you kind of have in common with Mr. Michael McCarty. Yeah, absolutely. Who, I think is Briarcliff Manor was yeah, his home sure. base when he was a kid. Yeah. So what was, tell me about your 
childhood. Um, what would your folks do, and how'd you start yeah, my, finding your way to the knife kit? The knife kit. My mom is a teacher, special education teacher, so mm-hmm. unbelievably patient, like to a crazy degree mm-hmm. of calm, and I've seen her angry twice, and both times was earth-shatteringly terrifying. Um, and then my dad is a salesman. Mm. Um, he sold uh, wiring and cabling for you know big buildings, like mm-hmm. the company he worked for did the did the wiring in the World Trade Center. Okay, um, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, my I have a sister. She's two years older than me. She's an attorney for okay. re- reproductive rights in New York. So they all live in New York. Actually, you said she's two years older, older than you. Yeah. Okay. And uh, grew up in a house with a yard and a beautiful place where the mm-hmm. leaves change and you could walk through the woods and no one would disturb you. And you could build fires and be a kid, basically. So I did a lot of that. Um, My parents always cooked. Both of them were very good cooks. And I gravitated to the kitchen at a young age and started helping them about eight years old. And then just loved eating and loved flavor and, like, didn't like things that are weird to me, not liking now, like tomatoes and mushrooms when I was a child. I hated mushrooms, hated tomatoes. I loved asparagus and broccoli. Did you hate them uh, on sight, or did you actually try them and dislike them? Oh, I tried them many times. Trying, I'd be like, I love cream of mushroom soup. I love tomato soup, mm-hmm. but like a raw tomato. But then, like at this point in my life, living in California for eleven years, like right. it would be insane for me not to like tomatoes yes. because they're just incredible. Mm-hmm. I, mean, not, I will say that the Jersey tomato is a thing of pure pleasure, though mm-hmm. here, but yeah. um. So I ended up doing that, and when I was 13, we went to a party that my mom's best friend threw, and the food was lights out incredible. And I just was so curious how it was made. I ended up meeting with the woman who catered named Charlotte Berwin and asked if I could learn from her. And she said, yeah, sure, I'll have you come and help us out. I was 13. Obviously, I was washing dishes. It was that immediate? Like, your reaction to that particular... Oh, yeah. At the end of it, I was like, you know, Mom, how does this... What I want to know about Like a Thunderbolt. Food. Yeah. What, what kind of food was it? Do you I remember? I honestly have no memory so of what funny. it was. Okay. I mean, but you were know, dazzled. You were just like... It was so good. Yeah. She I ended up catering my bar mitzvah. Okay. And did, like, curried goat, because goat <laughs> is not a cloven hoof animal, so you could do it right. in the temple and... Did you, uh, what do you remember? Were you struck by the visuals of it or you just said it was flavor. so delicious? It was flavor that knocked yeah. you out. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So you had like a flavor epiphany. Flavor epiphany. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we ate good food. Like my mom comes from, uh, you know, she's Jewish and my mm-hmm. dad's black and like yeah. those are delicious cultures, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but there was just something Something in Charlotte's food. I mean, yeah. I still think about the things we make not made then now, and they're just amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But before you went all in on that, mm-hmm. you am I not, am I correct about this? You wanted to be an actor. Yeah, I started taking acting lessons when I was ten years old. I always feel like it's important to qualify that it was my choice because with ten year olds, you didn't have like stage parents. No, they okay. were very much like. <laughs> Okay, find a class. Here's the newspaper. Right. Find someone. I, I just, for the record, I've been doing this more and more on the show because people can't see the conversation. <laughs> when Miles said no to that question, there was a lot of uh, facial emotion. That yeah. was a that was a very serious no. Yeah. About whether or not your parents nudged you in that direction. No, I mean absolutely. Or not. nudged you for the yeah Jewish yeah. side of the family. I was, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> um, and. So I took classes with a woman named Denise Simon who yeah. worked 
with a management company in New York before yeah. she went to teach. And she referred me to her friend, and I auditioned for the management company and started acting professionally at 11 years old. And talking about stage parents, there was a lot of inside jokes between my mom and I who had always trucked me down to near the city to go on auditions mm -hmm. and like wow look how crazy like that person's mom is or that dad is nuts or why is the kid crying we're just on an audition for a toothpaste commercial right. like and I just was having the time of my life you know I was yeah. doing what I wanted to do and I always thought you know I'm gonna move to California someday yeah. and I'm gonna be a movie star you know not for the star part, but for the like being awesome films part. Right. You and I barely know each other. I mean, we've talked a little in the dining room. Sure. I don't even know if you remember. I can't, I introduced myself through the yeah. window at Alumet a million years ago. Yeah, I remember that. In the restaurants, you have always struck me as a little bit shy. Yeah, I... Do you hear that from people? All the time. And this morning, from the minute I met you downstairs, you seem like this guy who could have been like a, you know, New York actor, mm -hmm. you know, can you reconcile this for me? Cause yeah, it's fa absolutely. kind of fascinating. Um, I think that I, when I am in a restaurant, my focus is ensuring that the food speaks for me. I think that if I'm talking to somebody, I have the opportunity to talk a little more. A friend of mine, um, she, she says that I like, don't answer in more than three words. Normally, and, she, and there's a speech you have to give basically at the end of the beard dinner. She's like, I didn't know that you actually had the capacity to speak that, that many words mm -hmm. in, one, in one time. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I guess part of it is having been an actor. But also, I feel like, at least recently in my life, I've decided that there's like nothing off limits. Not that there ever was, but when it comes to conversation and questions, I am like, please ask me things. I would love to answer them. But in a restaurant, it's not about me talking. It's about the food expressing something deeper that I cannot express in words. Mm -hmm. And so why do I need to be like, oh, did you try that? And this is so great. And like, if someone asks me a question about it, I can You'll geek answer. out yeah. one million dimensions yeah. Yeah. deep. Yeah. But um, I'd rather them just try and experience Interesting. it for themselves. Is yeah. that something that uh, somebody you cooked for at some point conveyed to you is that a philosophy that you've come to on your own where did this where did this mindset for you come from um i am pretty shy like i know you now like i've seen you many times and met you and we're obviously having a conversation yeah. and like i can be open to that and i'm you know used to speaking with people yeah um but when it comes to meeting people like i like let's say like in a relationship or something, like I'll never make the first move. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, I'll answer a question, yeah. but I won't like lean in first. Uh -huh. focus, you know I got mean? it. Yeah. So 100%. Um, I'm shy in that way. And I think that I worked in Japanese restaurants when I started. Mm. Um, and so there's a reserved quality to those chefs. And like, they're super fun when you like crack the code and start talking about golf because they all play golf. Um, or you, is that right? Is that a big, a thing lot of sushi happen? chefs play golf. Like that is a thing. That's like what tennis is or fly fishing to like mm -hmm. the American crew yeah. crowd. Okay. So, um, you talk about golf or you get enough cred where your knife is sharp enough and like the angle is proper. They're right. like, Oh, he knows what he's doing here. Let me show you how to like butcher, you know, anago. And you're like, I get to touch fish with a sushi chef. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, it's about, I guess my chef mentor, his name is Alex, uh, Alex Becker. He would talk about food and he says, it's about impact. You know, it's about the impact of flavor and acid and sugar and spice and all of these things. And that's what it's about. It's not about, you know, like 
trolling through the dining room and being the guy, like which I have full respect for because I can't do it. You know, I can talk to people like if I need to, but I'd rather just be like, this is a fig dish with trout roe and lemon verbena. I hope you enjoy it. There's popped burnt, you know, mustard seeds on top. And then like, I can't explain it and talk about why it's great. You need to experience that yourself. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very common, I think it's very hard for a lot of chefs to, and nor do I think it's part of the job to be able to explain, like you said, the food should be able to speak for itself. Right. And I feel like a lot of times, like, I, I mean, I'm sure you have too, and maybe you're one of them. There's so many chefs I know who'll tell you like they wake up in the morning and they dreamt of a dish, mm-hmm. right? You can't explain the dream. I guarantee the dream for nobody is, well, this will go good with this because of the whatever, right. like they just, they, they see a combination they never saw before yeah. or they see a finished plate mm-hmm. or they, right. Yeah. But there's no, like years ago, I talk about tennis too much on this show, but Jennifer Capriotti was interviewed after cool. a match and somebody said, what were you thinking of when you were match point down, you know, in the second set? Mm. And she just looks at the journalist and goes, thinking? <laughs> you yeah, know? Right. Like, what are you, no, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, there, like, that's, in, that's instinct time. It's instinct time. And I mean, creation is, can be a completely calculated thing, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. Like the way that like Grant Atkins does a flavor bouncing and a like draw a like 100%. circle, white bean, bacon, molasses, chili, you know, red onion, like all these things work together. Yeah. Or you can just be sitting in a room and be like, there needs to be something green, orange, and purple on this plate. Okay, verbena, trout roe, fig. Like, and your head just like does it and like that flavor bouncing wouldn't necessarily work. But it works when you put it together. A lot of times when we are composing dishes at the restaurant, I'll be like staring at an element for like a weirdly long time. And then be like, all right, let's go. Like, it's game time, you know? And then you'll make the dish, and like, this needs something, like, purple on it. This needs something green, but, like, not sorrel juice, sour green, like, bright and alive and, like, effervescent green, you know? Like, this weird color scheme in my head. Like, I mean, 100% visual person. Yeah. And, um... Did you do any visual arts as a kid? No. So the- I was chastised for coloring a groundhog purple in kindergarten and I had okay. to stay after class and my mom had to get called in because they thought there was something wrong with me. But that's called imagination. It's really weird in kindergarten for that to happen. I don't know. I don't agree Isn't with that. Isn't that weird? That's, I think that's but weird. But everyone, I, I have two kids. Everyone, yeah. they're older than that now, but everyone I know would say that is something that should never be discouraged. It was, to me, like as like a five-year-old child. you should be encouraged to go your direction with that. Was insane. I mean, it was all neat and inside the lines. Yeah. It was just a purple gopher basically so this is interesting can we stay with this for one second the purple gopher sure no the color thing Uh, is that a starting point for you sometimes i don't i mean for me like i don't have like synesthesia or anything like that like i I don't don't have that's like the memory based in color okay where you like i'm probably describing wrong someone listening like he doesn't know what he's talking about he knows a fancy word good for him okay um but it's basically you that's what it means i to me it's a color sense that is related to memory and emotion. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who has synesthesia. Okay. So she like, it's like the purple dress the night on like May 15th, 2003 that Amy wore. And like, this is the emotion that I have from that night at the party. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. That kind of thing. Huh. I didn't have that. And for me, color That's is... That's someone who almost experiences color the way most people experience the olfactory sense. Yeah, exactly. Right? That it's a real... Because most Triggered. people will tell you that... The sense of smell is the most powerful memory mm-hmm. trigger by far. 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but I interrupted you. Sorry. No. Um, I mean, the color thing. I mean, I obviously see a lot of beautiful colors at the farmer's market. Yeah. And love art, visual art. I love looking at it. I'm an awful visual artist. Okay. Um, but um, it's not... It's not that's not how the dishes are created typically. They are filled in that way, like shading. You know, it's how like, do you mean? Um, so I will make make a dish and it's like it needs something red on there. And red in my understanding is like can be hibiscus because it's like a purpley red color. Yeah. It could be chili flake, it could be like a sweet potato peel dehydrated and crisped. It can be like you know, a smear of something that is in yogurt that has, like, paprika in it. Yeah. Um, these are all things that they're not... There's no, like... There's no I've, single flavor right. or spice it's that you a, associate with red. Yeah. So no. you may be looking... Tell me if I'm getting it right. Mm -hmm. You may be looking at a plate that's you're composing. Mm -hmm. There'll be, for your eye, a color that's missing, and then you will try to back into a flavor mm -hmm. that works with what's there. Yeah. Yeah. It's never. That's interesting. I've never heard anyone put it quite this way. It's wild. I mean, I love texture in food. Like, I love beef tendons. I even like natto. Like, yeah. I love chicken cartilage yeah. and cucumber skin yeah. and all of those things. Yeah. Um, but I'm never. I do not think about texture when I compose dishes. I obviously incorporate a lot of it into the food. Yeah. But it's never like this needs something crunchy. This needs something crispy. This needs something wetter. I mean, oil fat is different, is like a seasoning. Yeah. So that kind of splays the line between like, like texture and, and flavor, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's always color additions that are the things that fill out the dish. You know, it's, this is, maybe this is a weird analogy, but I used to try to write screenplays, mm -hmm. right? And, and people are always saying like, you know, you, a lot of people feel like everything should be character driven, right? Mm -hmm. So you come up with your characters and then you write... And my feeling always, and I, this is where I relate to what you just said about the color thing, is I was like, no, it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. Because you're creating this script, right? Which you, you could use as like a metaphor for a dish, right? right? So you're creating this story. You may have initially come up with a character who would do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But if as the story evolves, you need to tweak your character mm. to make whatever's going to happen in the story more interesting. Does right. this make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. can do that. You're, the character's not locked, right? right? Yeah. So, the character's not a robot, yeah. But to me, that's kind of like the overall, that's where color sort of fits into a dish, sure. right? Sure. And then also just another co composition tool that I use, like I studied music for a while, and like there's the idea of overtones. Like if you play a piano chord, like other strings will vibrate inside of the piano that are not necessarily in the chord yeah um those are like the overtones like you know variations up the scale and whatnot yeah. um there are in my mind like mostly smell overtones like you'll smell something and be like you know i don't know uh, you smell uh, i'm bad at examples but say you smell something you're like oh man like it smells like burnt popcorn yeah it's like hmm, burnt popcorn like what if we burnt popcorn and pureed it into the sauce and then pass it through a screen so you just get the flavor of burnt popcorn but there's no texture there's no noticeable popcorn in this like lamb dish yeah and you don't you don't you know proselytize your use of popcorn you just say like burnt corn you know but it's popcorn which is a completely right. different thing so there's a lot of like nose in bowl like this smells like old like onions that were left in a bag at room temperature for too long so how do we get that flavor without it being gross you know what i mean yeah 
it's it's kind of intense. Yeah, there's a lot of intense focus and yeah. a lot and of and even like the way you were head. just again, people can't see, but you right. were just sort of and not to be cute about what we were talking, but you were sort of acting this as for just now. Sure, yeah, you were I mean, tipping your head down, you were sort of demonstrating what it looked like, but yeah. that's. I think that just shows how intensely you guys go about this. It's just, it's, if we do talk about acting and, and cooking and the, any parallels, it's the, a level of commitment to what you're doing. Mm. You know, like, if you're an actor, they're like, you have to commit to the role. And, you, and that can you know, go through a million variations of like the Joker and Heath Ledger to like Daniel Day-Lewis like, looking at his cell phone and saying, what is this strange technology you know, when he's right. doing you know, the whatever movie that he was in when that happened. Um, but it's also committing to what you're doing, flavor. Like, you can't pussyfoot around. Yeah. I think there's subtle food is the hardest food to make because it requires the most understanding of flavor. It's like, what is one of the most perfect things is miso soup. Like, perfect miso soup, beautifully cut, yeah. beautifully cut, vibrant scallion, yeah. and like perfectly poached tofu. Right. Like, that is unreal. It's not hard. There are four ingredients in it. You know, dashi, miso mm-hmm. paste, tofu, and scallion. Mastery can be achieved there. And you can make a sauce with 85 ingredients in it. It tastes great, but it's not going to have the same, like, laser focus, yeah. stratification of flavor. Mm-hmm. And, like, heartwarming dripping of soul uh-huh. Is there a place for subtle food in what you do? I, d- I think your, so. Your food at Michael's seems very... And this isn't a... Uh, uh, this isn't a derogatory statement for me, but it is, it does seem very, at least what I've eaten for the most, very vibrant, mm-hmm. visually and on the palate. Mm. Thank it, you. It, it's unshy that. food. Yes. Yeah. It's aggressively. Cooked. But do you have dishes there that you consider more subtle or more yeah. along the lines of what you were just talking about? I think so. We have a new dish on the menu. It's just blue prawns that are just, they're marinated. They're salted and marinated overnight. They're deep fried, cut in half, and then just set in a bowl of bay leaf dashi. That's it. Okay. It's nothing. It's very bare looking. It just looks like shrimp in a bowl of liquid. <laughs> right. But I think the most subtle dish on the menu, and one that is often not understood, and this is not a knock on guests, it's just because it's not something that people necessarily apply dish, quote unquote, to, is the bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Because it is a dish. It is not bread and butter. It is together one dish. Yes. The butter this on the This is something more easily stood by listeners under 30 than by listeners over 40. Mm. But yes. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like... And I've had it. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we make, we make sourdough bread with buckwheat and buckwheat, honey and buckwheat groats yep. in it. And we make a butter of toasted barley. And the bread itself is... Like uh, rugged brown bread, yeah. sourdough, good crust and everything. The butter is salty and like alive. And together when in, in, in improper, I would say, but proper for me proportions of a lot of butter to a little bit of bread, it becomes something completely new. A lot of butter to a little bread. Yeah. That's how you... Yeah, I would, I would go you for would it. Do we, it. A, we don't give enough butter for the amount of bread that we give because most people don't use all of it. But if I were there, I would probably ask for more. Okay. Um, but I think that it's it's functional, you know, because of our clientele and just the history of the restaurant to yeah. have bread and butter. But when when eaten as a dish, it yeah. is like the bread and the butter on their own are fine. Together, yeah. it's something completely new. Mm-hmm. So let's go through. So when do you decide to throw in the towel on the acting bit? So 
I was 19. I had just moved out to Los Angeles. For that reason? For that reason, yes. You thought you were going to, what, go on a bunch of auditions? Well, I had, like, amazing luck. I landed in L.A. Two weeks later, I was in a movie. You know, it was great. Um, and then it was back to auditioning and driving to the Valley and from Venice and all over the place. And I was just, I wasn't, I was in a position financially where I, like, didn't, quote, unquote, have to work. Um, and I didn't want to get a job as like a barista or something. Right. And I also didn't want to not work. So I thought, well, I could act and stuff or I could go back to cooking and have like a creative outlet daily and a, a disciplined practice that I could improve upon every single day actively. Because I'd taken acting classes for like nine years. So I was yeah. like, I'm not going to take 10 more years of acting right. classes. I think I can do it pretty well. And that's not a cocky thing. It's just like there needs to be a break in education, I believe, every once in a while. Yeah. And I would, I would have gone back to classes later. Or, I, well, know. and also you keep learning by actually doing. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So um, I went and I applied at a restaurant. I kind of fluffed up my resume to make it seem like I knew more than I did. Got a job, got demoted after a month because I couldn't do what I said I could do. And then I worked there for two and a half years. And then I ended up working. That was, where was Chef this? House. That was at Nobu in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and then I ended up, he basically told me like, you need to go and work for John Shook and Vinny Tolo. I know how much you like their food. They're opening a new restaurant. They have open, you know, positions. Take your resume there tomorrow and do that. Had you ever met the guys? I met, I like waved to Vinny once. Now they were in what, this was, what was the new roast? Was Animal? Son of a Gun. So Animal was the one that you loved. Animal was the one that I loved. And Son Anim of a Gun was about to open. Yeah, Animal okay. was not open for a super long time. It's yeah. not even opened. I got a job. Um, I dropped do, my I'm sorry to interrupt, just so people... So so Animal is, is a restaurant by John Shook and Vinny DiTolo. Mm -hmm. They now have several restaurants in, several restaurants Many, yeah. in LA. They're, doing, they're killing it. Um, how, do you, how would you describe what um, the food at Animal is? Can you put that in a box? I think... I haven't eaten there in a few in yeah. a, a little while, but I would say the best way to describe the food is that they opened up a pork centric restaurant on a Jewish strip in South Hollywood. Okay, so that's real. That's, that makes sense. You know, and yeah. they were not allowed to put the menu in the window by the landlord because it had all the pork. Is that on right? It. This is what I was. They told. thought it would be insensitive, insensitive to the Fairfax yeah. community. Yeah, exactly. Now there's okay. like a Supreme store next door, and like everyone's buying shoes, so it's a little different. But um, basically, the food that they make is. Delicious first, well sourced when you know everything's from the market yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and prepared with care and you know love. And when I started, there was a very small crew. There was they still did the catering out of the animal kitchen, which was an old Chinese restaurant with these like crazy rafters in the mm. kitchen. It's a wild place. Um, the food is an extension of the chefs. You know, like Vinny is. A, such a soulful cook and taught me how to cook meat in a new way and 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 taught me how to like cook veal brains and like all of the awful and like scrape a pig's head and do all this stuff that is but he also kind of does this gorilla thing as well where he's like we'll figure it out you know like let's do it you know yeah um and then and john is the same way like he's just in there like making delicious family meal for the cooks and like really just connecting with those guys yeah. and, and girls and just trying to figure out how to, you know, run this business. I mean, for me, and then we'll stop talking about those guys, yeah. but 
I, I think this is not true of Son of a Gun, right? But I, animals, I love animal. Sure. And one of the things I say about it, you may have a different opinion, but for me, I feel like usually you go to a restaurant, and even if the food um, seems a little bit uh, unconventional, mm-hmm. often you can, tr- you can sort of see what the reference points are, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like a lot of the food at Animal, you can't. Mm. It just seems like it came... I don't know where it came from, but sure. it's delicious. It works, mm-hmm. but it's not like you go, oh, that's a riff on so-and-so. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Son of a Gun, that's not the case. Son of a Gun is like their version of like a fish house, and, yeah. and there's very uh, familiar stuff there, and, the, and their, their take on it. Mm-hmm. But that to, that, to me, is something about Animal that I would imagine, and seeing the chef you became, I would imagine being around those guys that would mm. that would be like an influential piece of it. Yeah, I mean, is that accurate? Yeah, there's some strange magic to that place. Yeah, you know, there's, that's I, a good way to put there's it. There's a smell, like a good, like yeah. obviously, like when you walk in, I you know go through the back doors, like this is animal. Like <laughs> it smells like in the morning, it smells like roasting pork bellies, and in the afternoon, it smells like this. I can't describe it. Like you walk in the right. restaurant, and there's there's this like. Halo-y fuzz, weird, like magical cloud in there somehow. This would this is the olfactory way of saying what yeah. I just said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, so okay. So you sure. go to work for those guys. Work for those guys. We opened Son of a Gun. I worked at Animal for a few months. Of I worked there the first night. They broke two hundred covers. Uh-huh. That was when they were open till two in the morning. Yeah. You know, like we were cooking late, like all the whole thing, and um, opened Son of a Gun. Worked there for a while. And then I left, and I was at a crossroads. Um, I was thinking about maybe moving up to San Francisco. Um, what the chef de cuisine at the time of Animal had worked with Corey Lee at um, the French Laundry, and he's like, that was when Bennu was just kind of happening. That, that was, was Corey's beginning. own place? Yeah. yeah. So and Corey left the French Laundry around 2009 yeah. and opened and his own tasty menu restaurant yeah. in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, and so I was like, Mike, you know, can you hook me up with a stage at, at Bennu? He's like, yeah, you know, I can talk to Corey. And, and I was figuring it out, and I was in a relationship at the time, and that was, like, kind of stressful to think about leaving to be in a city so far away and yeah. be in this relationship. And um, so I ended up going to Griffith Park, which is a park in Los Angeles with my friend, um, and being like, what? are we going to do? I didn't have a plan. You know, I didn't have a like next place that I was going to go. I was like, you know what? Craig Thornton does Wolf's Mouth. He can do that. He's an awesome guy. And like, I really respect him. I see what he's doing and I'm going to ask him more about it and help him out. Tell people what Wolf's Mouth is. Wolf's Mouth is essentially a restaurant run out of a home. Mm -hmm. Um, And you go and you eat a long form tasting menu there and you meet random people you've never met before, and you all sat and eat communally. Yeah. So I did that. That was the next thing that I did. I ran out of my one-bedroom apartment with a galley kitchen in Hollywood. What'd you name it? The Vagrancy Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original idea was that every dinner was going to be at a different location, and that is a nightmare. Don't ever do that if you run one of these things, because you have to bring all the plates and deli containers all over the city. Um, so then we ended up just centralizing it there. Yeah. How many people do you serve? We would do 14 people and we do nine courses. How often? We did it twice a week, Friday and Saturday, but all week we would prep for yeah. it. Yeah. And it was a new menu conceived on the Sunday and rest. Excuse me, we were just hanging out after the, yeah. the come down of Saturday night. 
and then write a menu, commit to it, and figure it out commit. that week. There's that word again. Yeah. Did you uh, enjoy this time? Oh, yeah. Was it really exhilarating? Yeah. It was wild. I mean, like, it was a lot of Smart and Final runs, which is like a miniature Costco, but for restaurants. Yeah. There was a lot of farmer's market negotiations, finding ingredients I'd never used before and applying them to dishes and failing and succeeding. Yeah. I wrote everything down. That's Uh something that I always do. Like, I have stacks of... So many stacks of recipes. Uh-huh. And also a file that's like 800 pages long of everything that I've learned. How to For cook. real? Yeah. That's great. You yeah. have it electronically or you have it? I have it electronically and I have also physical copies of that's it. That's smart. Um, so when you were... It's so interesting, you know, there, there seems to more and more be people who were to roughly the age you had to be when you were doing that... Mm-hmm. Uh, this has become sort of one of the rites of passage for a lot of people, you know, yeah. where you've like, you've put in time in restaurants. Mm-hmm. You maybe don't have exactly the idea or the plan or the vision or the backing for your own place. Right. You want to do something that's yours. So you do, you know, I just saw the movie 42 grams about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I feel bad. They got divorced. And, yeah. But um, uh, that couple in Chicago that was right. doing something similar to this, this has become... Uh, you know, one of the possible avenues for chefs in the last, what, 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, we started the Vagrancy Project with $1,300 in cash. Yeah. That was it. It's an amazing yeah. thing, though. I mean, it's... it's uh, and I get what you say about exhilaration because, you know, you're young enough to do a, take a chance on something you're like that. You're young enough to stay awake for two days prepping, yeah, basically. And there's, and there's customers who were into that today. There's a market for it. And... Um, and you're at this transitional time where you really, it's not, that's not going to be your whole life. Although mm. I actually believe for some people that is going to actually be their whole life because sure. there's so many restaurants. Yeah. Um, but for the moment, it's, it's kind of seen as like a rite of passage or as a stepping stone or as a, to- a time buyer. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself during that time? I learned that I am 100% a list person, which I always was, but I would like write crazy prep lists and lists and I made a joke last night at the beard house like I'm the most organized disorganized person you'll ever meet in your life because like I know where everything is in the kitchen Uh I know where all but I also like have a very fluid artistic brain where it's like oh let's do this thing right now but like you have to cut the tape and make sure you wipe the edges so it's like a really weird balance of like free flow and also like discipline and like yeah. complete like structure, so we would be doing and self. I mean, I'm not kissing your ass, but self awareness, mm-hmm. right? You recognize a certain thing about your natural tendencies, mm-hmm. and so you overcompensate the other way because you're in a field that requires precision. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So I anyway. think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I I always knew that I loved all of the things about food, and but I also learned that I really like to I really like to talk to people about food when they're excited about food. Uh, at the end of the dinners, it was always fun to talk to people. I also learned that um, I developed a language for the cooking that I make, and we spoke in it to the staff and to the guests, and I really enjoy being able to, like, I can drop food in a restaurant very well, basically at this point. Um, like serve it to somebody and explain a dish without it being robotic or mm-hmm. obnoxious. Um, 
but it's also something that I always talk to the cooks about. Like, you guys need to know how to do this because you're going to have to do it someday. But also, it's it's really cool to know more about the food than anyone else and give it to a guest. Yeah. I mean, it's what you just said kind of dovetails with some conversations I've had lately, which is there are certain things, if you want to be a chef in 2018, that you have to reconcile yourself to doing because it's so competitive. Mm-hmm. Like, you do need to be able to go out and at least drop a dish and describe it like at a minimum Mm. i think i don't even know if you like doing interviews like this but you got to do stuff like this i I do like interviews there's so many but you know what i'm saying like i don't think people these i was on a book tour as you know earlier this Mm -hmm. year and there were certain questions that came up and people kept asking me about like the celebrity thing i actually don't like that word i I think a known chef is a better term Mm -hmm. unless you you do nothing but be famous but right. for people in restaurants I think it's a little bit of an insult right. um, uh, but I was like you know there are people I think who have decided they're sort of above all that you know they're above the PR game I don't think you can be that person anymore you know you're gonna you're gonna be in the whatever happened to category mm. Do you, I don't know if you agree there's so much competition yeah I mean there's definitely you a lot gotta of competition you gotta stay top of mind sure and I also think you know if you love cooking and you love talking about food and you have the opportunity to do that with someone who is also passionate about what yeah. you do yeah why wouldn't you have that conversation it's like the old business adage like always take a meeting you know what i mean right. like right. you can't meetings are just ideas you're not committing to anything like we're talking about food and we're having yeah. a great time and yeah. i've talked about people like music and all of these things and right. you know i think you have to engage with everybody in various ways now because if you you know if you're not like incredibly good at instagram and twitter and all of that and you still have to find a way to reach a broader audience because only so many people are going to come into the restaurant every night but more people come in if they are interested in you and people are more interested not you like in an egotistical way but in your philosophy Mm -hmm. and what you're doing food wise and i think that's what avenues like this give opportunity for because it's like, wow, that person's really interesting. I wonder what their food is like. Right. I totally agree. More than with like, that. wow, that's a beautiful picture of like a banana dish. Right. You know? Yeah. I want to eat that because like pretty stuff is cool. You know what? It is funny. Uh, I, I, my, it's, it's, it's really underfed. I hope to get it back moving again at some point. But, you know, I have a blog where I used to run a lot of chef interviews or profiles. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's this show. And I will get emails from people based on interviews, no, mm-hmm. no pictures of food. Saying, next time I'm in so-and-so city, I know where I'm going to dinner. Yeah. You know, and it's because of exactly what you just said. They just take a, a liking to somebody. Right. Or find them intriguing. Right. You know? So how did your, how did, over the time you were doing the Vagrancy Project, how did your style evolve? You know, real talk, all the restaurants that I've worked in um, since leaving John and Vinny, there has been a, an avenue of, like, some form of necessity of the that? cooking, like... At Alumet, we had a very small staff and no refrigeration. So it's like you have to figure out how to cook with those parameters. Got it. You know, at, I worked in the Caribbean. Like, you could only get certain prod, products there. I worked in Northern California in a very big operation where there were lots of moving parts. So things had to be, like, decidedly simpler, but still call the same things out of it. And, like, at Michael's, there is a history that has to be respected. So there, it's not like... We're just opening a blank slate, and I have all the money and all the Comey's and all the Heston products that we can cook on, and right. let's go wild. Yeah. You know, like, 
I love, and one thing that I said at Alumet that stuck with a lot of my cooks is that limitation is a source of creativity. 100%. You know, it's In like, anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like if you have everything and you, you don't have to want for anything, like you better make a linea. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because right. if you have it, you, you should do it. But isn't it more than that? Because there's, it's almost been an uh, intermittent theme on this show. Um, I, I think it, it definitely is that. Right? Again, I have so many, because I used to be in the business and I'm a movie geek. You know, There are all these great stories of these famous moments in movies mm-hmm. that came about out of necessity, right? The right. most, for me, one of my, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's that scene where the samurai's, you know, spinning the sword and he just shoots them. Mm-hmm. He had uh, he had a stomach problem that day. Harrison showed up and said, I, "I maybe have an hour in me," and that was the solution they came up with. Wow. You know, it's amazing. Classic scene. Yeah. But there are stories like that, right? Yeah. Um, but it's also I've had other chefs say to me that that limitations or necessity, whatever word you want to put to it, you're a young cook, right? Yeah. In your head, you have this world of possibilities. You mm-hmm. haven't quite honed it. You don't have like this. Uh, this uh, traveling set of favorites of a uh, you know hit songs yet right? right those limitations can also give you I'm, i'd love your reaction to this a very useful structure mm-hmm. right they can put parameters around you right. and kind of start crossing possibilities off what could be an endless and, and very sort of daunting list yeah is that right does absolutely. that make sense absolutely i mean I think there's certain things I try not to in, in the cooking that I do, like rely on things that I've done before and like repeat yeah. dishes. We don't really even repeat ingredients on the same menu. Mm-hmm. So that is a structure. That is a limitation. That is a very aggressive limitation. Yeah. Um, but I think that when you have to figure things out for yourself and you're like, I have a Frigidaire refrigerator and I'm going to cook a... 144 plates twice in two days. How am I going to prep for this? Like, how am I going to get enough? How am I going to get all of those, that cilantro and chicken jus and all of that in there? Mm-hmm. You know, so figure it out. Be really organized. Have your thing labeled. Consolidate. Taste. Omit ingredients. Have a pantry. Pickle stuff. Ferment things that can be out of room temperature, you know? Like, taste everything. Use the pickling liquid as a vinaigrette. Yeah. You know, like, instead of just going in there and being like, we're going to make every component and like I'm just going to figure it out it's going to be a mess because like, you're going to a person's small apartment it has to be clean it has to be organized yeah. you know we're basically hand washing 144 plates yeah. in a little sink <laughs> yeah. you know so you just got to do it like a like a ball of clover like a bride on My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, 
and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook. Roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's bolognese. Head to lecrusade.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash H-R-N to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code H-R-N. Welcome back to the show. We're going to return you in just a moment to our interview with Miles Thompson of Michael's Restaurant in Santa Monica. Just a reminder, as we do every week, if you would like to follow the show, you can subscribe for free at iTunes and Stitcher. And you can follow us on social media. The handle is at Chef Podcast. That is at Chef Podcast. We do post every time we drop a new episode. And if you would be kind enough to leave us a review on iTunes or even just a rating, we would appreciate it. It really does help people find the show. And with that, and continuing our theme of keeping it short in these episodes, I'm going to get you right back to my interview with Chef Miles Thompson. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. You were at Alumet. Yeah. You got some nice attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, even from, if I'm not mistaken, the late, great Jonathan Gold. Um, then you kind of... You didn't disappear. You were out there yeah, <laughs> from yeah. yourself, but you disappeared from L.A. I did, yes. Were, were the, the, the in-between time between Alumet and Michaels, where, where were you? I went up. And why? I, yeah, I went. I took a job in Healdsburg, California, at the uh-huh. Healdsburg Shed. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is I wanted to change where I was. I had never been to Northern California. It's a beautiful place, incredible products, serene a new experience and we had friends up there. Plus it also offered me the opportunity to learn how to bake, learn some viennoiserie, like, like puff pastry stuff, learn how to make bread, learn how to do charcuterie better, learn how to do more old world stuff. Cause that was the whole ethos of shed. Yeah. And then after that job I was finished with my time there, I had the opportunity to go down to St. Kitts in the Caribbean and basically work on a luxury resort setting up a food and beverage program. Uh-huh. Um, was it a new resort? It was existing, but the f- format of the program was changing. Got it. So I worked on that. And was then, that did you enjoy that challenge? I mean, talk about... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about... That's like the opposite of the, the closet-sized kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. This was like a big ship to turn around. Yeah, and we basically... The only thing that brought in besides all the produce came from the island yeah so that's like wild to think a 46 square mile island we're you know using all the produce from there it's awesome and neighboring islands like nevis and some other like neighboring Mm -hmm. islands um only thing we brought in was meat from the united states because the meat on the island was not of the caliber we wanted to be sure um fish all came like rigor mortis delivered to the pier on a rowboat like, You're eating fish that was in the water that morning. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Unbelievable. And um, limited the menu because of what was available, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, found a lot of challenges there. You know, you're an expat, um, you know, in a weird place. Not a weird place, but like in a weird, in a weird state of 
citizenship and mm-hmm. existence and there's a lot of challenges and poverty and you like seem to have this cushy life but you are also like in charge of all of these people that you want to respect and want to res- you want them to respect you and you want to be honest and fair but you also have like people asking you for things that are really crazy and hard um like any restaurant that's no nothing new but um just, you know, respect is incredibly important to me. And so, like, wanted to honor the traditions and, like, pay attention to what, how good cooks that the people from St. Kitts are, you know, yeah. and, like, incorporate that into the food of this luxury resort. So it was a, you know, it was an interesting challenge. You happy with what you did there? Yeah, absolutely. Do you enjoy that piece, the boss piece? Being is, a boss? Yeah. Would you, like, in other words... That's something that every chef has to do, right? If you're yeah. in a restaurant, you got to manage a crew. Yeah. But would, do you enjoy that part of it? Or if it were somehow all of a sudden possible that you could do it yourself, would you just as soon do it yourself? I think at Alumet, like, I wouldn't let anyone cut things, like, because of, like, weird neurosis about how every knife cut looked. And I taught people how to cut things and then let them do it later. Uh-huh. Um, I enjoy being a teacher more than I enjoy being a boss. Okay. But lately, as in the last six months, I've found a new kind of energy and ethos in, in managing people. Yeah. And it's like I have less fear of people just leaving because they're going to if they want to. Um, you mean people leaving their jobs? Yeah. Okay. That was a huge like neurotic fear of mine for many years. Because so, but what was it based on? Like, well, you you didn't want to invest in people because it was a foregone conclusion that they were they were going to leave. I didn't want to have to be the only one cooking. You know what I mean? You were afraid you might get left high and dry. Yes, okay. exactly. So you had an extreme fantasy about what could happen. Yeah. We well, don't absolutely. have the biggest crew. I come. I came back there yeah, that one small night. Crew, well, yeah. You got four people yeah, back there. Five people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when one person leaves out of a five-person crew, that's a huge hole. Yeah. Um, but I realize, like, I'm going to be the person I am, and I will be fair, and I'll be kind, but I'll be stern, and I'll make you do things twice and three and seven times if they're not right. Mm-hmm. But they have to be done a proper way, and you have to respect the process and the product. And I don't want to make you do it three times because that's a rabbit, and it died, and you need to butcher it with respect. You know, so if you can't do it, I'll show you how to do it. Yeah. And if you need me to show you seven times before you can do it once with love and respect, and you're going to mess it up, but mess it up with the intention of doing it properly. Don't mess it up out of carelessness. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of how I look at it Okay. now. It's like, I can be tough. Like I can be really tough, but I like to be firm, but fair. And there has to be a reason why you're being tough. You can't just be a jerk. Is it hard for you to be tough? I'm only asking because you seem like a fairly gentle person. Yeah. And I, think, I mean that in a positive well, way. Well, it's like I told you before about my mom being yes, like yes, terrifyingly right. angry twice, twice in my life. Yeah. I haven't been angry in like like that professionally in probably seven years. And it's like a huge point of embarrassment up for like the way that I acted then. Um, and not in like a... I didn't like throw something at someone or like call anyone a horrible thing, but it's just, you lost control. Yeah. Yeah. And control is incredibly important in Mm -hmm. a kitchen and in an environment where things are dangerous and there's a lot on the line. So, um, I can be tough and, but like kind at the same time. Yeah. Like, like, you know, I learned that from my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. I guess the operative word is fair. Right. So how do you get to Michael's? Um, you I remember being take the ten from <laughs> uh, Echo Park, and you sit in traffic for an hour and fifteen minutes. No, um, I was 
the job in the Caribbean was finishing up. Yeah. And I reached out to a few chefs in L.A. Yeah. and said, hey, do you know anyone looking for an executive sous chef, chef de cuisine, or executive chef position? Because as with anyone who loves to cook, like, I would be a line cook for the rest of my life. I could pay all the bills that I would need to pay and buy a house with that. As salary. anyone who loves to cook? I think anyone that is, like, a, a chef that is... In my opinion, like, there's a line in the Alinea cookbook where Grant Ackett says in his forward, like, I love being a line cook. Yeah. And that always resonated with me. And I have a lot of respect for him. And I love being a line cook. It's an actual honing of craft daily. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm sharpening my knife better today. I'm cutting chives better today. I'm cooking duck breast better You're today. You're working a station. I'm poaching turnips better today. I'm turning yeah. this vegetable better today. Does this happen in L.A.? I, I've, I've run into a couple of people. Greg Baxter was on this show from mm. Olmsted, and we spoke yeah. about this. He started, I mean, he's only in his early 30s, right? Mm-hmm. So he's an owner, an executive yeah. chef, but he started working a station again periodically. Yeah. And I've heard this from other cooks who are like, you know, in their 30s who, you know, you can... You know, if you start as young as people do these days, you may graduate, quote unquote, from the line earlier than you want to. Right. Do you know more and more chefs who are I mean, kind of making time to be honest? I think it's I, out of Susan, necessity. I interviewed Suzanne Tract from Jar yeah. Restaurant. She still works a station. Yeah. That's amazing. I think a lot of it is out of necessity right now. You do? Yeah. Financial necessity or because the workforce is so taxed? Both. 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 Okay. Um, but also, it's nice to cook your own food. Yeah. And to know, like, I am making this food I created for somebody. And not just a VIP. Like, I have a weird relationship with VIPs. Yeah. I think that, you know, I've, I've stopped making one-off dishes for VIPs. Yeah. Because I think it's egotistical. And I think it's, it's you don't know how, how good it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also, um, I want my crew to cook the food for them because they're... The ones right. are more represented. It's like, no, I'm going to cook everything for like this chef I really respect. So you used to do like an improv for a VIP? Is oh, that yeah. what you mean it when was, you say one-off? Yeah. It's dangerous. They could suck, you know? Or they could be really good and you don't know because you, you meant can't it eat. as an act of respect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, Michaels, you start putting feelers out. But yeah. before we get to that, why did you want to come back to L.A.? Because you've been up north, you've yeah. been to the islands. Like, what did you miss, LA? Yeah, I missed LA. That had kind of become home for you. It's, I mean, I moved there when I was nineteen. I became an adult there. You uh-huh. know, I made best friends there. Yeah. And felt at home and had a community. Yeah. Of, of professional community yeah. and personal community, um, and it's also a pretty great place. It's pretty weird, but it's pretty great. Uh huh. Um, so I wanted to go back there. Um, and try it again, take a stab at it, you know, and yeah. try to do something great. I mean, there was a lot of like unfinished business in LA yeah. for me. Okay. You know, Alumet closed after a year and a half. Right. We were relatively critically successful, um, f- not busy until we said we were closing and they were like viciously booked out. Did that piss you month. off? I know a lot of chefs who that really pisses it them off. It didn't piss me off. I was just like, we've been here. You know, yeah. we, 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 we were doing like four people yeah. a day ago, and now we're doing 115. Yeah. Um, it was cool to cook for that many people. It was definitely a push because the prep was so different. Yeah. Going from doing like, you know, small amounts of people yeah, to yeah. two and a half turns. Um, it didn't piss me off. It made me happy that people got to okay. try the food. I think the food remaining you know at the end was like the best we made, so they, they got the good stuff. That's good. I just, I've known people who like, they're, they're dying, they announce they're going to close, and then 
all of a sudden the floodgates open and they were like, you know, if these people were all coming like once a month, once a year or once every six months, we, we would have been able to stay. Yeah. Anyway. So I wanted to come back and I wanted to cook there again and see how the food could evolve and learn more about the city. And I still know nothing about Los Angeles, um, but I love the food and all of the different little enclaves of, of people from all over the world. Uh huh. So so, so yeah. you start networking around. Yeah, and then um, two chefs uh, got me in touch with Michael. Um, Mike emailed me, and we, I was going on, I was leaving St. Kitts to go on vacation. I never knew my passport. Yeah. And went to um, L.A. Yeah. Met with him and Chaz, his son. Yeah. One of the managers of the restaurant, and we went to the farmers market, walked around, talked the, for a while. The Wednesday Santa Monica market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Went and walked and went back to the restaurant and sat down and talked for a while. And one thing led to another. I, I was going to New York afterwards uh, to visit my sister, my parents. Um, I was in the basement of our building doing laundry, and Michael called me and offered me a job. Um, uh, and now I met Michael's. Had he had your food? He never ate my food. Wow. Had Chaz had your food? No, neither of them. So this was based on them kind of asking yeah. around, yeah. reading the reviews. And what was, you mentioned earlier the, the history of that place, which mm. I'll have talked about this in the intro uh, to the show, but what was sort of the, what was the mandate and what was your, what were your feelings about coming into a place that had that kind of reputation? I mean, it's not that well known nationally, but I think in LA and in LA food circles, people mm-hmm. are very aware of what that restaurant meant. Yeah. I, I mean, coming into it, I basically... Look at the roster of people that went through. And I was like, okay, I can't ever think about this. I just have to cook, and not in a negative way, but in a way like it's going to intimidate me way mm-hmm. too much if I think about all these. Chefs it's like looking down it. when you're trying to summit a mountain or something. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot. There. Right. right. Um, so yeah, I wanted to have the opportunity to cook there. I always knew about it living in Los Angeles. It was always this mysterious place in Santa yeah. Monica with this lauded history and all these stories. And it's like, if I could be part of that, that'd be cool. Uh-huh. And uh, add to the history and learn from the history and be close to the farmer's market and yep. cook in this place. It's amazing, you know. Now, do you draw, you kind of indicated earlier that you drew sort of a dotted line from what you do to the sort of um, uh, legacy of that restaurant. Mm-hmm. That is not, a me- and I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean, you know, I've come in a bunch of times. Yeah. But that is not immediately apparent to me. What do you mean when you said that? Like when you wanted, you said you wanted to be respectful of the of the history of the mm-hmm. restaurant while still doing your own thing. How do you see that? Well, I think the most important thing is that we source everything properly. Mm-hmm. There's no like gross truck dropping off Brussels sprouts. Yep. You know, from you know Iowa uh-huh. to us. Um, Nothing wrong with Iowa Brussels sprouts. Um, but we get everything from the market. We, we know the farmers. They yeah. grow things for us. The same spirit. It's more the spirit Got of it. what Michael did originally yeah. than it is like, you know, uh, Rouget with raspberry sauce and arugula, <laughs> which is a dish, you know. Um, but Which was a dish back in the yeah, day. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> which that sounds really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but it is about making this food based in a city supplied by so many incredible farms and farmers and ranchers and fishermen and making food that is pure of heart. I think that's really the thing that Michael always, the restaurant always has produced, Mm -hmm. you know, and like the food that we make is at times 
multi-layered and complex and has a lot of ingredients in it. But at the end of the day, it is an expression of what we are using and there's no hiding behind it. There's no like, oh, these turnips aren't that good, but we'll put them on the menu, you know? Yeah. Um, And like I said, at the dinner last night, someone asked me like, how do you, what do you want to be as a chef? And my goal is just be to learn how to be a really awesome home cook. Uh, I think that I'm pretty good now, but I was not very good two years ago. You know, you, know? you say home cook, though, but you mean but serving what you do in a restaurant situation. I think with the, Or like, do you mean at home? I think that if you could, you know, everyone's... If anyone has a grandmother that's a good cook, like I yeah. do, her food is always going to trump anything I could ever make. Mm-hmm. If you could cook with that spirit, soul, and history, and just, like, love in f- refined food... Yeah. You, you've won the game. Yeah. But this, again, goes back to me that then... So here's a question. How do you convey that to a team? Right? That, to me, when someone talks to what you just talked, which I agree with a thousand percent mm-hmm. as a diner, that's how I want to eat. Yeah. But that's the hardest... It's much easier to convey to a team, put something in a circulator at this temperature for right. this many minutes, right? Anybody could do that. Right. Right? Absolutely. What you're describing is you almost have to have like a mind meld mm-hmm. where you convey... Not just here's a recipe, but here's what we're going for. Here's what, you know, yeah. here's the feeling to put it in acting terms. Well, every day we have like a 15 minute meeting with the kitchen staff yeah. about this. And we talk about, we talk about cleanliness and standards and knife cuts and operational things. But we also like dive into these more philosophical and at times like semi psychedelic ideas of like what it means to cook and your spirit and your emotion and your mom and like when you cried the first time you ate something special and why and how it's so deep and emotional. And when you think about cooking, like when you're basting a steak, like think about someone you love and think about doing it right. And like, why? And you'll like, I've definitely cried on the line cooking, you know, just thinking about people. Have you? Yeah, absolutely. Because the food reminds you of someone in particular or or this emotion behind it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that a regular occurrence? It's not every day, but no. It's but I mean, happened it's, more it's than happened once. more than yeah, once. Absolutely. Or That's... like cleaning stuff. Like it's you put everything. I always say to the cooks, like you need to leave the restaurant exhausted. If you didn't, you have not put everything you have into it. I love that. And, you know. And I mean, eight-hour shift, twelve-hour, fifteen, eighteen, twenty, whatever it mm. is, six-hour, two-minute. You know, if you come in to pick up your paycheck, like, and you help clean something, like, leave exhausted. That's great. Is that your own line? I've been saying it for a few years, yeah. 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 I've never heard that before. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, are you exhausted enough from this interview, or should I ask you some more stuff? I mean, I I got more in me. (laughs) I I may be out of ammo. Sure, sure, sure. I understand. (laughs) All right. Well, this was great. I'm glad we finally got to talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having Uh, me. Thanks for making time on this visit to New York. Yeah. Thank you. And that's our show for today. A huge thank you to Miles Thompson for making time while he was in New York doing that beer dinner. A huge thank you to our engineer, Vitor. Vitor, thank you very much for splicing these things together. A big thanks to all of you 
out there in podcast land for listening to the show. And we'll see you back here very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. 